This morning I would like to continue on in our study on the life and faith of women in the Bible. Everybody say women in the Bible. All right. If you haven't got an outline in your hand, just wave your hand around a little and somebody is going to get you one. Um, We've been journeying uh, in this study for some weeks now, and uh, and I say praise God for women. <laughs> I mean, praise God for women. Uh, and uh, you know, sometimes, particularly when women um, are standing in faith and uh, doing all the praying and all the training of the kids in godly ways and so forth until the men get up to speed. Uh, And sometimes the men get up to speed sooner and sometimes a little later, but praise God for the women who are standing regardless. You know, when we talk about women in the Bible, we could swing in all directions. We could uh, talk some more about Old Testament women. And this morning, we're going to spend some time talking about the life and faith of Esther, uh, a wonderful woman in the Old Testament. We could swing over into the New Testament where book of Hebrews speaks about faith, Hebrews chapter 11, and it speaks there about the women who received their dead raised back to life again. And so God responds to faith, whether that's a man or a woman. So this is not so much about gender, but nevertheless, it is about uh, that God wants all the women to be encouraged. And God appreciates all the women that are standing, sometimes in the heat of the battle, as I said, until the men get up to speed. And sometimes women are forced into this uh, uh, unusual scenario where they have to take spiritual headship in their home and in their family because the man's not up to it just now. Uh, and so if that's the case for you, then uh, we, we especially pray for you that you remain strong and fill this role until the man gets to that place. And our faith is joining with yours that he will get there sooner rather than later. But once again, praise God for women. Praise God for the faith of women. I'm reminded of uh, one of God's generals uh, in the army of the Lord uh, in the church world today by the name of uh, David Yonggi Cho, uh, pastors the largest church uh, in, uh, in the world, uh, in Seoul, Korea, nearly a million people there uh, or thereabouts. Uh, they're giving away uh, so to speak, 25 people at a time to so able to plant other churches and everything else. And it's just phenomenal what's going on there. And, uh, you know, it's been said that Yong Yi Cho built his church largely on women labor in the sense of where women filled the roles of leaders, small group leaders and so forth, because the men in the early days in particular were too busy to pursue their careers and just not being all that interested in God. In fact, I was just uh, with a Korean man this week, um, and uh, he told me, he says, oh, he says, you'd be amazed. He says, you go to Korea. He says, there's a church everywhere. Churches everywhere, he says. And praise God for what they've been able to achieve in their country. Uh, and, uh, and a lot of it goes back to women standing and women praying. And so uh, be encouraged this morning if you're a lady that's standing by faith. Uh, and praise God, if your husband is with you and beside you, that's absolutely wonderful. But if he's not just yet, uh, let me encourage you to continue to stand. Now, speaking about the life and faith of Esther, um, Esther was a young Jewish woman uh, who lived in the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, in, in other words, outside of Israel, uh, after the 70-year Babylonian captivity. And you may recall, for those of you that have studied the Old Testament, that Israel was uh, invaded by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, uh, basically tore down the temple, carted the people away up into uh, 
captivity. It wasn't so much slavery. He just resettled the people uh, up in Babylonia. Uh, and, uh, and that happened because the people were disobedient to God. And God told them, he says, if you guys don't do what my word says, you're going to get into trouble. And sure enough, they didn't do what the word says, and they got into trouble. And God told them that they were going to be outside of their country for 70 years up in Babylon. And that's exactly what happened. After 70 years, uh, the people were allowed to return, uh, and the then king gave them money, gave them permission to rebuild the temple, and of course that happened under the leadership of Ezra. Uh, the city walls in Jerusalem was rebuilt under the leadership of Nehemiah, uh, and yet some of the uh, Jews stayed on in the then Persian Empire because uh, Babylon was taken over by Persia and so forth. And here we got a young woman, a young Jewish woman, who finds herself away from her own country along with many other of her um, you know, of her people, the Jewish people, uh, and that was under the uh, kingship uh, of Ahasuerus. Now, Ahasuerus is also called Xerxes. Uh, so if you read the Old Testament, some translations call him Ahasuerus, some call him Xerxes. Uh, one's a Hebrew name, the other one's a Greek name or something like that. Um, Esther's life, and this morning is a little bit storytelling, uh, if you like. Esther's life and faith is spoken about in the 10 chapters in the book of Esther uh, in the Old Testament there. And what I would like to do is to go through aspects of her life and to pick out some of the faith principles that we can see. This is not so much a systematic teaching on faith, but we can see absolute keys that I believe are very important. It's like what made these women to be such great women of faith and how can we be people of faith? faith ourselves and what can we learn from them. Um, and of course, as I said before, that although Esther was not connected by relationship to some of these people, some of her contemporaries were Nehemiah, because we got the book of Nehemiah, we got Ezra, the priest, the book of Ezra, uh, and people like Zerubbabel and, uh, and uh, some of the, uh, what they call the minor prophets, they lived at the same time, uh, uh, though they were spoken about then in Israel, because she was still up in Persia. Um, in the capital of the then king, which was Shushan. Shushan is a, was the capital city of what they called the citadel, uh, which would be in present-day Iran, Persian Empire. All right, just to give you some understanding in regards to the backdrop. Um, and, of course, to understand the amazing life and, um, and faith and even ministry of Esther, because she had a ministry um, uh, we need to be aware of some of the main characters in the book of Esther and uh, what their respective actions were so we can get a holistic picture and with that understanding move forward. So first of all, there is, of course, King Ahasuerus uh, or King Xerxes, uh, who was the king of Persia. Then there was Queen Vashti. Queen Vashti. Uh, there'll be a uh, a study for the ladies' meeting sometime to talk about Queen Vashti because she was a very beautiful woman, uh, but she um, did not uh, live right and did not uh, flow with her husband, so she ended up being banished uh, from the king's presence uh, and divorced for all intents and purposes. So Queen Vashti, who was the first wife of the king. And then there was Mordecai. Mordecai was a Jewish man, uh, and he was the older cousin of Esther, who was a Jewish woman. Um, 
And Mordecai, not only was her cousin, the older cousin, he was also her guardian. And for all intents and purposes, he became her father because Esther's father uh, died. And so Mordecai adopted Esther into his family and she was brought up under his guardianship in his home and he looked after her. And then finally, there is a character by the name of Haman, a local man who became the primary advisor uh, and the right-hand man to King Ahasuerus. Uh, and that's kind of the backdrop. Uh, and as we move forward, uh, I'm trying to wrap up 10 chapters of the Bible into the next 45 minutes and uh, hopefully come away with some keys thereafter. It's like, wow, you know, in terms of walking by faith, this is what that means. Uh, in terms of walking by faith, I've got to uh, make adjustments in my life so, in, so that I'm able to get to a level of high faith that some of these women in the Bible uh, operated at and, of course, some of the men just the same. Now, just to give us some uh, backdrop again, uh, some of the initial uh, sequence of events that took place. Uh, King Ahasuerus uh, was a very volatile man um, and very autocratic. Uh, you know, like he just ruled uh, and, uh, and he changed his mind and he got furious and angry and he did this and he did that. So it's hard to keep up with the guy. Uh, he held a six-month-long feast for his officials. Six months long, these guys are celebrating and feasting. Um, he was over 27 provinces or 27 countries that stretched across all the Middle East, uh, including Turkey, all the way across to India, uh, and countries in between uh, and south from there, back across and all the way down into Africa, northern Africa, including Egypt, all the way down to Ethiopia. Here's a big guy. Uh, it's one of the largest empires that existed at the time. They reckon that, that he was just an incredible, uh, incredible guy. Uh, so he held his feast. Uh, in the citadel, invited all these uh, princes, all the officials to the palace, and for, for six months long, they're eating and drinking and they're celebrating. I don't know what they're celebrating, but he just wanted to show off. He, wa he wanted to be generous, and he wanted to be liked by the people, uh, and so forth. When that six-month feast finished, he decided to throw a one-week-long feast for all the inhabitants of the capital city. So he invited them all to his house, invited them all over to his palace, which was apparently a magnificent magnificent uh, structures of buildings and just incredible. Um, invited them all over and uh, for a week-long feast, uh, feeding all the people, giving them wine to drink and, uh, and just a whole week-long celebration. On the seventh day, when he was all happy, uh, and I'm sure that the wine helped a little bit too, was that he's all happy and he thinks everything is wonderful. And then he decides that he wanted to have his wife brought over, who evidently was not a part of the celebrations. She had her own celebrations going on. She had a ladies' meeting at her own quarters um, and a ladies' meeting going on there. And she said, to, uh, he said to his seven, seven eunuchs uh, who looked after uh, the, the, the wife and, and, and the other women, um, and, uh, and he says, look, he says, I want Queen Vashti brought to me, and I want to show off her beauty. I want her to be dressed in her, in her royal gowns, and, and because the Bible says she was a beautiful woman to behold, so he wanted to show her off um, to all the people. And, uh, and so evidently, uh, the queens were not that visible to the public eye back then, but he thought, all right, we're also happy here. Let's bring uh, my wife in, and let's all see how beautiful she is. Well, 
Queen Vesta refused to respond to the king's command and, to this, and decided to ignore his invitation. In other words, she was disobedient to her husband. Um, that's why I'm saying that there's an idea there maybe for a ladies' meeting sometime. I'm, not sa- I'm just saying, I'm just saying. So she was disobedient to her husband, and he is furious. Uh, well, he's embarrassed. And ladies, whatever you do, don't embarrass your, your husband. Whatever you do, if you need to bail him up, do it by yourself. But don't do that in front of the kids, and don't do it in front of his friends. That's not a good idea. All right, now that was not in my script, but I thought I just felt like I just wanted to blurt that out. All right, so ladies, don't embarrass your man. And of course, the man's not allowed to embarrass his wife either. All right, it goes both ways. All right, I've been preaching yet. Have we started yet? All right, so here we go. She says, I'm not coming. He's furious, he's embarrassed. And so he calls his advisors together uh, and he says, All right, what's to be done with my naughty wife? Uh, And they said, uh, Look, this is not good. This is not good. Because what that will do is that it will all come to the ears of all the other women in the kingdom that the queen gets away with being disobedient with her husband. And then all they will be disobedient to, the, to, to their husband. It's going to be disaster across the board. Um, and we could actually swing into marriage teaching from this point forward. We really could. It would be really easy. So anyway, they said, King, this is not a good scenario. What you need to do is you just you need to make a decision that she will never be allowed to come in your presence ever again and that you're going to find another woman and, uh, you know, in other words, get rid of this one and uh, find another woman uh, and, and, and uh, marry again and, and make the new, uh, the new wife uh, the queen. Um, and so they, and that's what he did. He just, you know, in his fury, he said, all right, this is it. And you know, a man can make a dumb decision in his, uh, in his fury and in his anger. And then later on, he's got to live with it. The Bible says that later on, he thought about it. He thought about Vashtar. Well, it's too late now. He'd already issued a, a royal decree that could not be undone. And that was according to the laws of the Medo-Persians. Once the king decreed a decree, it could not be undone. So, uh, and then sometimes when a man flies loose in his rage, and he says things, certain things can't be undone all that easy. Uh, so that's why it's a good idea to not fly into a rage and say things that you regret afterwards or make decisions that you regret afterwards. So he decides that he runs with what his advisors are saying. So he thought about Vashti later. It's too late now. So anyway, they said to him, King, why don't you uh, call together for, you know, across all your 20, 127 countries, provinces, why don't you speak to all your officials and find all the beautiful women, all the virgins, and have, have them all brought together uh, into, the, into the ladies' quarters in your palace. Let them undergo a year-long beauty treatment, uh, and then let them be brought before the king. Um, this is all wonderful, isn't it? This <laughs> is like all really wonderful. And uh, let them be brought before the king one by one, and the lady that, that pleases you the most, let her be the new queen. And he decided that that was a good idea. So they bring, it to, bring together fr- women from around the country, and that was a big country. All the beautiful women uh, were picked, and, and they underwent a year-long beauty treatment uh, and with oils and massage and who knows what, and preparation. So they put these ladies through, seemingly through some finishing school. Um, how do you know what a finishing school is? All right, There's actually still finishing schools today uh, where they send young ladies to so that they can be, you know, learn etiquette and manners and, and so forth. And sometimes I met some ladies and I think, oh, so you ought to go to finishing school. Um, <laughs> 
And of course, uh, we ought to have finishing schools for men as well, that they know how to treat their wives. And uh, of course, fin- the best finishing school is in the home, where the father says uh, to the boys, don't you mistreat your mother uh, or your sisters and, uh, and vice versa. But sometimes when husband and wife mistreat each other, <laughs> the kids think that this is the order of the day. And when a man does not respect his wife, it's because he hasn't respected his mother. Never been taught. So finishing school. So anyway, so they brought all of these ladies together and uh, brought them all in there. And Esther was among them. She was evidently a very beautiful woman. Um, And of course, they brought these women before the king. um, And no details necessary. But anyway, the Bible says that she pleased the king the most. She was like this, uh, just, uh, you know, the favor of God was on her life. So she ended up being the king's favorite. She became his wife and the new queen in the kingdom. Uh, Esther chapter 2 verse 15. That's where we pick the story up. Mordecai had adopted his younger cousin Esther. And when it was Esther's turn to go to the king, she accepted the advice of uh, Haggai, the eunuch in charge of the harem. She asked for nothing except what he suggested, and she was admired by everyone who saw her. Esther was taken to King Xerxes, which is now that uh, King Ahasuerus, uh, at the royal palace in early winter of the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. And he was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. Now we have Esther, a young Jewish woman, being married to a pagan king, becoming the queen in a, in, in a secular, in a, in a pagan kingdom. Uh, and I suppose there would have been all sorts of, you know, uh, paganism and, and religions, other religions going on, but God's placed her there very, very specifically. Um, and in verse 19, it goes on to say, uh, even after all the young women had been transferred to the second harem uh, and Mordecai had become a palace official, Esther continued to keep her family background and nationality a secret. She was still following Mordecai's direction, just as she did when she lived in his home. All right, so this is what went on there. And uh, I guess uh, faith lesson number one, Esther still had mentors in her life. She still allowed people more mature than herself to coach her and to mentor her. And friends, I believe that that's a real key because sometimes people get to a certain level. Now imagine this lady here is now the, the, the first lady in the country. I mean, she's second only uh, to the king. She's above everybody. And yet she still humbled herself and listened to her guardian, to her advisor, and still listened to him. Not only that, but she also listened to the chief of the uh, eunuchs who had looked after her for the whole year. She followed exactly his advice rather than doing her own thing. And what went on there was that every woman was allowed to bring from the harem, from the place where they had been kept for a year, when she appeared before the king. And I'm assuming that meant clothing or items or various other things things, entourage, whatever, could have done what they liked, and it was okay. They were given that freedom. But Esther said, no, I don't want that freedom. She said to the chief of the eunuchs, what do you think I should do? Because he understood the environment. He understood the king's preferences. And the Bible says she did exactly 
is the man suggested. And I believe that there's a key right there that sometimes people think they got, you know, sometimes people listen to two and a half types of Kenneth Hagin's faith teaching and they call themselves faith people and off they go. Going somewhere to happen is a disaster because learning faith takes a while and we never get to the stage in our journey of faith where we now no longer need anybody. You see, the journey of faith should never be a long journey. We should always keep our lives open to people whom God has placed around us and people whom God has placed over us. Is that all right to say? Because I, as I say, I've seen this. I've seen this. Uh, when people get big in their own eyes and, you know, like uh, amazing. We look at King Saul when he was, uh, small in his own eyes, God says, I was able to use you. And he listened to Samuel, who had mentored him and brought him into that position. And thereafter, he developed a mind of his own. And God says, I can no longer work with you. And then sometimes people develop a mind of their own and they close themselves off to the people whom God has placed over them and people that God has placed around them. It's a real problem. Uh, faith people don't do that. Real faith people remain open to people uh, whom God has placed into their lives. You know, uh, there is a couple of scriptures that spring to mind immediately. Proverbs says that a man who isolates himself um, uh, rages against all wise judgment. And I've said over the years, I've, there's a few men that I've sat down with, I says, I says you, you, your attitude of being a lone ranger is going to become your downfall. If you don't open up your life to other people, the Bible says there's safety in a multitude of counselors. And, uh, and in, 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 in a few of those instances, it's proven right that sometimes it's taken five years, 10 years, 15 years, and then you see the downfall. And I'm thinking, I, I, I spoke about that. I tried to get some wisdom into the life of this man, but no, he decided that he was going to be his own man. Uh, people of faith are not their own man and they're not their own woman. They're connected up with a body of believers. Uh, they're connected into a local church structure where there is leaders in place that can encourage us uh, and that can help to keep us on track and to continue to coach us and uh, teach us and encourage us. So... Um, Esther continued to keep her family background and nationality a secret. Uh, why, why did she do that? Because Mordecai says, look, when you get there, Esther, don't say a word. Don't tell them that you are from Jewish background. Don't tell them who your family is. Just keep that one quiet. And that wisdom proved to be key in order for God to be able to move her into a roll into the right place at the right time to, in the end, be able to be used by God to save the whole Jewish population within that huge kingdom. Let me give you a little pearl of wisdom here. Sometimes I've talked to people over the years when they get into a particular environment. There could be a job promotion. that could be just getting into a certain place and everything. And praise God, you know, we're never ashamed of Jesus Christ, never ashamed of the gospel. But sometimes it's not a good idea to blurt out and say, okay, I'm here and, uh, and I can do this and I can do that. And by the way, I'm one of them Christians and I'm a wonderful person. Sometimes it's just best not to say anything about your faith and just get into a certain place. It is a known fact that there are certain sectors of, uh, in, the, in, the, in, in the marketplace um, you can't get into if the uh, interviewers find out that you're a Christian. And some of them are extremely politically correct environment. Some of them are politically extremely left-oriented uh, uh, that they don't want Christians in their place. 
because they know what Christian stands for. They know what, in fact, a number of years ago now, and I could not say that it would be the same now, but I was I had the privilege of talking to, talking to some people who had gone through uh, teacher's college. Uh, and at that particular time, they said, if you go there and as part of your interviewing process to get in there, if you tell him that you're a Christian, you are likely to get turned down because uh, they, 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 at that point in time, they said, we don't want Christians. So sometimes it's just good to just sit on that knowledge and abide your time. This is not about, not about being secretive. It's just, you know, the Bible says that we need to be wise as serpent, serpents and harmless as doves. And as I say, I've talked to a few people over the years. And so I said this and I said that. And I said, well, I'm not sure if that's a good idea. I don't think that that's good wisdom. Uh, if God wants to maneuver you into position that sometimes, flirting uh, it all out there that you're a Christian. And you know, how many of you know that they're Christians and Christians? And if you're talking to somebody that's met one of those weird Christians, then, uh, you know, it's like, you know, what do they say? Tart with the same brush. Uh, and and it's, it's like uh, some of those weird Christians have messed it up for the rest of us. Uh, of course, there's no weird Christians here. Um, no weird Christians here. So, so that's just a, a pearl of wisdom that Mordecai said to Esther, look, don't tell him about your Jewish background. Don't tell him about that. And she did exactly what he advised her to do. And that key, that one key became crucial in her being able to get into that position uh, and to be there at the right time, in the right place, to save the Jewish people from, uh, you know, who lived in Persia at the time from sure annihilation. Because as we will find out later on, then Haman, initiated a process where they was going to do ethnic cleansing throughout the kingdom to have all the Jews killed in one single day. Um, and uh, so here in Esther chapter 2 verse 21, it says, One day as Mordecai was on duty at the king's gate, two of the king's guards became angry at King Xerxes and plotted to assassinate him. But Mordecai heard about the plot and gave the information to Queen Esther. She then told the king about it and gave Mordecai credit for the report. Uh, again, that was kind of very, very crucial uh, that they did the right thing and went about it the right way. Friends, we need to conduct ourselves with wisdom at all times. Uh, we need to make wise choices. Uh, it's very important because God is forever trying to set something up to maneuver us into a place of influence, into a position of power. And we've got to be just wise about how we go about that um, and what we do. So an investigation was made, verse 23, and Mordecai's story was found to be true. The two, mans, uh, the two men were impaled on a sharp pole. Uh, this was recorded in the book of the history of King Xerxes' reign. Um, and so this is what happened here, that uh, uh, Mordecai became aware of this assassination plot, and he gave information uh, to the king via the queen. Now, he didn't have direct access to the king, so he fed the information to the queen, which was, of course, his little cousin. Um, but it, it seems as though that he didn't have direct access to her either, so he had to go through channels to work through her uh, eunuchs there that came to him, and he talked to them, and he gave them the information, and so forth. So here is this uh, <laughs> scenario where this man brought up that little girl, and now he can't even talk to her anymore directly. Uh, but anyway, they went about it in a wise way and being very gracious about it. So uh, the, uh, the king discovered that that 
assassination plot was real. Those two guards were killed. Uh, and uh, and uh, that scenario was recorded in the chronicles of the kings uh, because they obviously kept history. They had scribes, they writers that basically took care of all the writings so that things were kept for history and so forth. Now, uh, at a certain point in terms of moving on to the interim sequence of events, the king ended up promoting Haman. Everybody say Haman. Hey, man. Hey, man. Um, he ended up promoting this man to the top position as his top official advisor and as being over all the princes of all the 127 uh, provinces they had around the place. And then he commanded all his officials to bow down to Haman uh, and to kneel down before him when he walked past or when they walked past him. Uh, and everybody did that because the king commanded it. Uh, and Haman refused to bow and refused to kneel down before the man. Uh, he just wouldn't do it. Uh, it's an interesting... Mordecai, sorry. Mordecai refused to bow down uh, and uh, would not kneel down before him. Uh, in fact, there is a quote of a recent Israeli prime minister, and I don't know if that was Netanyahu uh, some years ago or whether it was the prime minister before him. He says, we bow to no one except God. And of course, the Jewish people understand the Old Testament. And here, uh, they were supposed to bow down. And of course, uh, they were clearly told that they were only to worship God. Now, one translation says that these guys, these officials were supposed to pay homage uh, to, to, uh, uh, to Haman, to pay homage to him in order to, you know, to bow down and everything. And you know, whilst it's right and proper for us uh, to understand you know, the social airs and graces and so forth and be respectful and tactful, but there is a point where they were almost supposed to worship this guy and Haman says I'm not worshipping nobody except God he's a Jewish man uh, he was an Israeli he was uh, you know Jehovah was the one that he bowed down to as a result of that uh, they spoke to uh, Mordecai over and over again and says Mordecai why do you disobey the king's command uh, says well anyway he just refused to bow down to this guy and Haman became furious over that uh, he became really really angry and resentful uh, and when he found out that Mordecai was a Jew he decided that he was going to have all the Jews killed in the whole of the kingdom, including, of course, Mordecai. Uh, of course, what the man didn't know was that his queen was a Jewess as well. He didn't know that. You see, that's why it was crucial that she didn't open up her mouth at the wrong time and tell uh, them all as to where she was from and who she really was. So he tricked the king into issuing a decree that on a certain day, on a certain date, all the people in the country were supposed to attack all the Jews, kill them all, seize their assets. And Haman said, and I'm going to put some money into the king's treasury, I suppose, just to sweeten the deal. He really tricked the king into doing that. And the king thought, oh, yeah, that'll do. And just, you know, believed that Haman was uh, uh, giving him the right counsel and the right advice. And so now there's a death sentence hanging over all all the thousands of Jews that are throughout that whole uh, empire. And Mordecai finds out about it. Of course, the king's horsemen were sent out to deliver the king's edict and the king's decree uh, and with the date and the, the methods on it all throughout the, the kingdom. Um, and when Mordecai found out, the Bible says that he tore his clothes, uh, and uh, which is a typical expression of just horror and terror and distress uh, amongst the Jewish people, tore his 
his clothes and then he took off his clothes, uh, put on sackcloth. Sackcloth is basically sacking. It's just a very uncomfortable, rubs on the skin and that was their way, putting on sackcloth and putting ashes on themselves. It's an expression of mourning. He's now going into a time of mourning, a time of prayer. He sits before the king's palace and Esther finds out that her uncle is out there, well actually her, her older cousin, and he's in great distress. Uh, so she sends out one of the eunuchs and says, just find out what's going on with my cousin. He's not in a good way. Uh, and find out what's going on. Uh, so Esther chapter 4 verse 6 uh, uh, hath, has whoever this guy is. He went to Mordecai in the, in the square in the front of the palace gate and Mordecai told him the whole story including the exact amount of money that Haman promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. And Mordecai gave him a copy of the decree issued in Susa uh, uh, that called for the death of all the Jews. He asked uh, this guy to show it to Esther and to explain the situation to to her, and he also asked him to direct her to go to the king to beg for mercy and to plead for her people. So he then returned to Esther with Mordecai's message. So you see what's going on there, that Mordecai is communicating with uh, his little cousin uh, through one of these other guys. Um, and uh, basically now she finds out what's going on. And uh, and she basically formulated a reply to be brought back to Mordecai. Um, and, but he had asked her to intercede for the Jewish people before the king. Quite clearly, quite clearly, she was a woman of influence. But the king was a very volatile sort of a character. When he was in his inner court, uh, he had a law or a rule that nobody was to go before him uninvited. And if they did, they would be killed on the spot unless he decided to extend out his golden scepter towards them, which like say, okay, you can come in. I've decided that I'm in a good mood today. You can come in. But if he didn't stretch out his, his scepter, then there was, it's just a sure death sentence. Uh, that's how he had set it up. A very wild sort of a guy. Uh, very volatile, very unusual. Flying to a rage at a moment's notice. Very erratic. Uh, sometimes guys can be like that. It's man, get a handle on yourself. All right, just, just get, a, get a hold of yourself. Um, this guy's crazy. So anyway, uh, Esther knows about this. Uh, and actually back then it seems that uh, husband and wife, king and queen, did not sleep together. Uh, they, they slept in different quarters. And she didn't see him unless he called for her. Very unusual scenario. Of course, uh, um, without going into the details, he had one wife, but all the other women that were called together, they ended up all in his harem. And he called on them occasionally. And, uh, you know, how these guys, I mean, he, you talk about Solomon. He had, what, 400 wives and 700 concubines? I mean, how mad can you get as a man? <laughs> this is madness. <laughs> and completely ignoring the way that God had set things up in the beginning in Genesis, God says there was going to be one man and one woman, and that's enough. All right. And of course, we pointed out that it's one man and one woman. It's not two men or two women. Uh, it's, it's one man and one woman. That's how it set it up. Well, of course, these guys are not, uh, they're not uh, uh, Jews. These kings are just pagans. They just do what they want, so they ended up with this scenario. 
So Esther formulates a response to Mordecai, and she says here in uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 10, Esther told uh, Hathak, uh, I believe you pronounced that, to go back and relay this message to Mordecai. She says, all the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his golden scepter. And the king has now called me to come to him for 30 days. Um, so Hathak gave Esther's message to Mordecai. So evidently, Esther did not have the confidence because her uncle, her cousin, encouraged her to say, please go before the king and start interceding. Beg for mercy for the Jews. Uh, and she says, I can't go before him at the threat of my life because if I pick a bad day and I go in there, he will have my head cut off and then they go through the whole process all over again. He already got rid of his first wife uh, and he will get rid of me just the same. And that's basically uh, what he, uh, what she said to him. She says, all the people know, she says, that there is this law before the king that, uh, you know, that that must not be done unless you are invited. Um, and in verse 13, Mordecai gives a very pointed reply. Um, and Mordecai sent his reply to Esther. And he's now, there's no more pleases or thank yous. He says to her, don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape with all the, while all the Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at this time, like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from another place. He's a man of faith as well. You know, sometimes when people put all their eggs in one basket, so to speak, and the, if that basket falls over, it gets lost, and it's just, it's all gone. But he's a man of faith to say, listen, uh, Esther, if you don't arise now, God's going to bring somebody else, and you're still going to die. You, you're wanting to keep quiet to save your life, but you're going to die if you make the wrong decision now. And God is going to raise up deli deliverance and relief for the Jews from, an, from, for, from praise God. I declare that my mouth is working from another place. But you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you will make queen for such a time as this. One translation says, it's who knows whether you've been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. So basically Mordecai informs Esther now that she had been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this, for a specific purpose. He also told her in not so many words, it says, Esther, it wasn't your good looks that got you there. It wasn't your charm or your beauty or your smarts either. Don't even think for, for a moment that you can keep quiet to save your own skin while all the other Jews are killed, uh, that you're going to get away with that. You were brought to this exalted position by God's grace and by divine providence to intercede for the Jewish people at this time, even if it costs you your life. And friends, here goes faith lesson number two. Walking by faith goes beyond our comfort level and our own security, or for that matter, having our own needs met. You see, as people of faith, we approach life with a kingdom mentality and seek the good of others around us. That sometimes when faith people get all about themselves and about their own needs and about their own miracles in their own life and not reach out and not 
You know, I mean, it's like, I mean, it's like from here on, we could teach intercession for lost people. We could teach about handing out invitations to get people along here tonight for the first Alpha introduction course so that people can get saved because we are saved already. We're on our way to heaven. But Esther had a moment there where she just thought about her own self. And Mordecai was fairly pointed and very straightforward. He says, Esther, wake up. You have not been brought there by your own smarts. And we need to realize that, yes, it's good for us to apply ourselves. It's good for us, you know, to get, you know, for young people to get an education and to go somewhere and to do something great. But ultimately, God maneuvers us into a particular position or into a particular environment so we can exercise influence in that particular uh, setting. And that's exactly what went on right there. Esther chapter 4 Verse 15, Esther sent a reply to Mordecai, and she says, Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same, and then, though it is against the law, I will go and see the king, and if I must die, I must die. So here is now faith rising to an entirely new level. She put her own interests aside, her own comfort level pushed aside. She's ready to step out and to do something great for God for the very purpose that God brought her to the kingdom for such a time as this. She rose to, to the occasion. And friends, sometimes, you know, we, we kind of, we get stretched. Uh, in fact, how many of you... Remember Pastor Nigel uh, at the ICFM convention telling us the story how God moved on him to lead a protest down to parliament grounds in regards to that stupid resolution that the United Nations had to pass there, led by New Zealand against the Jewish people, uh, resolution 2468 or whatever they called the jolly thing. And God moves on one man in the whole nation and say, I want you, Nigel, to rise up and live. take a few busloads of people. And he tells the story how he says, all right, I'll do that. And then in the night, he, he's getting scared. And he's like, oh, no, what have I done? And Oh, no, I'm going to be before the median. Oh, no, they're going to shove a camera in my face and a microphone under my nose. Oh, no. And he had to wrestle his way through all of that. And I must say, uh, we were there. Uh, and he held himself very well. Um, and talk about rising to the occasion. There's a specific grace on this man's life to do exactly that. And, friend, there's a grace on you and a grace on me to rise up in a certain environment and to fulfill a purpose. We're not just here to go to work during the daytime, earn some money, have dinner in the evening and sleep in the night and repeat the process over and over. God's brought us into the kingdom for such a time as this to fulfill a specific purpose. We're here and charged with the spiritual well-being of the community that we're in to reach out to these people and get lost people saved ultimately and then there's specific purposes uh, in amongst all of that. Whew. Esther says, everybody knows that it's against the law. You know what she says? And if it's against the law, I'll go anyway. And friends, here's a deal that ultimately we must obey God and not be bound by the laws of man. The Bible is very clear that we are to submit to the king and to the authorities that God's put in place and that we obey the law of the land. But certain times there are certain laws set up and some of them are real, that that's definite legislation. Other times are just politically correct rules that have been released there, like unwritten rules that people are now beginning to obey. 
and we've lost democracy, we've lost the freedom of speech because of such stupidity. And friends, you and I, we need to break out of that deal and not let these uh, bondages come on us. She says, I'm, uh, you fast and, and you pray and I'll do the same, she says. And my mates, we're going to fast for three days and for three nights we're not even going to drink any fluid, which by the way is not necessarily a good idea. They call it the Easter fast. I mean, they were determined people. Uh, and in terms of afflicting themselves, and that's what fasting does amongst other things, uh, and to really humble themselves before God, uh, uh, you can turn the, the affliction of a 15-day fast into three days, but not eating at all, not drinking, which is, by the way, not healthy. Um, but they did it anyway, and she says, all right, she says, and when you guys are done fasting, I'm going to go. I'm just absolutely going to go, even though everybody knows it's against the law. That's why I said that some of these laws, you know, we've got laws now, we've got politically correct laws that you say, oh, you know, it's not right that, you know, it's not right that you tell people how to vote. Well, says who? Says who? Which law is that? You know, it's not right that you speak against this and speak, speak against that. You know, that, that you've got this going on and that going on in society. You've got to love people and accept people. And you can't speak against their lifestyle. Well, says who? What law is that? Which law? And if it's against the law, we've got to ultimately... You see, when the apostles preached the gospel, preached Jesus to the people outside the temple there... And they were captured by the temple guard and the priests started to home in on them. And she says, who gave you guys permission to preach in this name of Jesus? And by the way, you must never preach in the name of Jesus ever again. And they said to them, like quite unfaced, said, look, uh, it's whether we should obey God or man, you guys judge. But we are called to do what we are called to do. And certain rules we don't fit into. You see, everybody knows that it's against the law to preach Jesus in strongly Muslim environments. But it's happening anyway. Because it must be done. There's a higher law that demands us to proclaim the truth and to not be intimidated by these forces that wanting to shut the Christians down and to turn them into a powerless mob that are just always wanting to be nice about everything. Certain things you can't be nice about. You've got to just absolutely confront them. Everybody knows it's against the law, she said, but I'm going to go for it anyway. Praise God. Is everybody doing all right here this morning? What laws are kind of uh, hanging on, on you that prevent you from fulfilling the purpose of God? Everybody knows. Sometimes, you know, sometimes men, husbands, impose some very unusual and restrictive laws over their wives. And of course, the wife in the end, you know, the wife is called to submit to her husband and, you know, and so forth. But certain laws she ought not to obey because there's a higher law. There's a higher law. I know things are not that cut and dry, but sometimes men are just, just brute beasts that are just demanding their, their wife to just, you know, like to just don't. Go to church. Don't do this. Don't do that. Says who? Says who? Jesus commands me to go to church. All right, so there's a whole deal there, friends. It requires a bit more insight and study. We can't just shoot from the hip and say, well, I'm going to obey this law, but I'm going to disobey this one. Uh, but there's certain perceived laws that are no laws at all, and yet Christians are under that, you know, politically correct sort of a deal, like there's now supposedly a law where it is improper to ask a young woman if she's going to have children if she became prime minister. Well, well where is that law? I personally would want to know what the planes are. 
I, will, I personally would be quite politically incorrect and I would have no problems about that question being asked even though it's now politically incorrect. See, when people stand up to become public figures, they want to be our leaders, it's only right for us to ask certain questions which are not illegal questions. They now become improper because of this whole politically incorrect sort of a deal. For me personally, I like the idea of a family person becoming prime minister. We've had the other already. We've had it for nine years in the 90s and in the early 2000s. The people that have no comprehension about family and what it means to raise up children and what it means to be married, that would be my, my sort of a preference, just a thought, now that I've broken the rules and the law which is a stupid law anyway. Oh, are we doing it right? We're in the thick of it now again, aren't we? How did we get here? Everybody knows it's against the law. My friends, ultimately, let's run with the law of God. The law of God tells us to reach out to lost people all around us. The law of God tells us to speak truth, but speak it in love. Don't be nasty with it. It's like, you know, we need to speak the truth, but we speak it in love. And uh, it's an interesting thing that, uh, you know, I've been on parliament grounds a few times joining in the protests, and sometimes when them Christians come out, uh, I think some of them should be permanently hidden away. You know, they come out with their veins, signed, written by hand, just unprofessional, in your face, un unloving. Un it's, it's, you know, some of these guys ruin it for everybody. But if we want to have a proper debate around something in a civil sort of a way, it's now been ruined. And there's all of these laws that have been put in place, written and unwritten, because of some of these silly people that are just, you know, that are just so uncouth and so untrained and so unprepared to speak in the public arena. There's an anointing for that. And not everybody's got it. Anyway, we're still doing all right this morning. Praise God. So walking by faith takes us outside of our comfort zone. It takes us beyond where we feel comfortable, where we might even feel secure. Um, but yet, as the people of faith, we approach life with a kingdom mentality. Friends, we, every single one of us, have been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. God wants his people to rise up in every environment and get your timing right. Get your timing right and here. In fact, let me carry on uh, we're just going to just move on quickly now into the final sequence of events just to wrap the story up. I must say, reading the story of Esther, just a wonderful, uh, wonderful young lady who's so um, very wise about it. And it wasn't her own wisdom. It was the wisdom that was given to her by her leaders whom God had placed around her. So Esther realized that the fate of the Jewish people rested on her shoulders. And she wasn't going to hide with that uh, weight on her shoulders. So she asked Mordecai to call all the Jewish people in the city to fast. Uh, and she said, I will, and my maids will fast as well. And then she approached the king, even though she was not invited. And at that stage, she really took her life into her own hands, so to speak. Or she really surrendered her life to God at that moment. She says, if I die, I die. I got to do this. I'm called to do this. If I die, I die. I remember I had the privilege of speaking to with a young man from one of the um, Middle Eastern countries there with a strongly 
Muslim, strongly Muslim, uh, like I'm talking 99% Muslim, uh, and this young man turned to Christian. And he came into the West and he says, look, he says, you guys need to send missionaries to our country. Uh, and they say, yeah, but it's against the law to preach Jesus. He knows there's a higher law. He says, you sent missionaries. Our country needs to be saved. Our people need to be saved. And one man said, well, yeah, but what if they, if they get killed? He says, send more, send more. <laughs> there's a mindset here. There's a mindset here where some of these people that have come up under these things, when they get born again, they haven't got some of these uh, parameters around them that average Christian has. He said, if they get killed, martyrs, same more. It was amazing. Sadly, this man got attacked. His own family was going to kill him because he turned to Jesus and they found out. Uh, then they attacked him with acid. Uh, they put acid into his face and completely disfigured him. And he just cared. The, the more they tried to come against him, the, the fiercer a Christian he became. It's just an amazing story. And then, you know, sometimes, as I say, for some of these people, you know, for us, life is actually safe. We're actually very safe in New Zealand. Um, you know, prime minister can't just, can't just come and uh, and lock us up, uh, though there would be elements within the parliament environment that would make it illegal for certain things to be preached in our country. So just be aware that whatever decision we make in three, four, five weeks' time, that it will impact on our liberty. And ultimately, we're here for the kingdom. We're not here for ourselves, for our family, for our ethnicity, or for what works best for us. We're here for the kingdom. That's what we're here for. And so Esther says, all right, I'll go before the king. Uh, and when she went in before him, she used tact and wisdom. And this is what's necessary. Tact and wisdom to approach the king uh, when she communicated with him. So when the king asked her what her wish was, she invited him and Haman to a banquet to her quarters. It says, king, come to my place. And I'm going to put on a dinner party for you, and there'll be food, there'll be wine, and bring Haman with you. He's your main advisor. Bring him with you. So she's a, she was a wise woman. She was, a, she was a master at timing. Lady, when you deal with your man, pick the right time. Pick the right time. And, you know, and you've got to pick, pick your battles as well, and then be tactful. Is this all right to say that? <laughs> So just turn to the person next to us. We're really out there now. It's like really we're telling women how to live their lives. We're really out there now. Um, remember, ladies, finishing school? It's like let's be Finnish people and let's be kind and tactful and, uh, and you know, let's speak wisely. And that's really, this woman understood that thoroughly. I mean, she went before him. She knew how to butter this guy up. You know, she just knew how to king. She was just, you know, the favor of God operated in her life. She wasn't just beautiful on the outside, but she was beautiful on the inside. See, Vashti was beautiful on the outside, but we're not sure about her inside. And you know, the Bible speaks about outer beauty that it fades. But ladies need to make an effort to develop inner beauty. So when the outer beauty fades then there's still a beautiful woman to behold because she's mastered her, her, you know, her character and her personality and she's a kind woman and so forth. And, and these are all keys here. For, as I say, there's a ladies' meeting coming up. I don't know what's going on, but let's have more ladies' meetings. Let's have more. Let's have some men's meetings as well. Uh, Praise God and speak to the man so that husband and wife can, you know, have finishing school in the home and bring the kids up so that we haven't got a lot of that brokenness that goes on in society because it all leads back to the family. 
It all leads back to the family. And, uh, and certainly when it gets to vote, uh, voting time this year, we ought to make a, a, a vote that is going to be good for the family. Uh, very, very important. So uh, he invites the king around and Haman for a dinner party and uh, when he gets there and again they had eaten and he's now you know he's now feeling good about life and and so forth and uh, and had some wine it's all right queen what would what is your wish and she says oh my wish is that you come again tomorrow you know she's like really like stringing this thing out now he's like getting really keen it's like what 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 is it about this woman what does she really want and she just played the game really good you know it's (laughs) it's been said that man is the head in, in the marriage and in the home, but it's been said that the woman is like the neck, you know, she just knows how to turn the head this way and that way. And a wise woman knows how to do that, not coerce and get all stroppy like, you know, wise and with tact and with wisdom. Anyway, I'm moving along. Some of the ladies are starting to, you know, try to stare me out, which of course I don't respond to anyway. So praise God. <laughs> so she says, King, come again, come again, come again tomorrow. So he goes home and he has a sleepless night can't sleep. Sudden insomnia comes on. It just so happens that the king can't sleep. It so happened. I remember a couple of weeks ago we used that term, it so happened. This is all divinely orchestrated. So while the king can't sleep, he says, bring me the book of the history of the kings and read it to me. I can't sleep. I want to, you want so, so they read, they read, they read, they get to the story where Mordecai warned the king about these two assassins that he had right in his, right before his door and that uh, the whole plot was averted and uh, the guys got killed and, and he says what's ever been done for Mordecai and they say sir nothing's been done Nothing, has he never been on it no nothing's ever been done the next day he gets up and uh, Haman comes to him because Haman seems to have free access to the king now. He says, Haman. Now, Haman was a guy that was full of himself. He's just, he just a nasty piece of work. He's just all about himself and about what he wants. And he knew how to wiggle in and out. A manipulative weasel. That's what he was. And Haman goes before the king. Um, and the king says, Haman, she says, what should the king do uh, for a man that he would like to honor. And Haman thinks, this is about me. This is about me. It's surely about me. And, uh, and he says, oh, king, thinking about himself, king, if you want to honor somebody, what you do is you get one of the royal robes that you've worn, put it on the man that you want to honor. And he could already see himself wearing this robe. And, and then sit him on one of the royal horses with the royal diadem on the head and, and then have him led through the whole city and with a man in front shouting out saying, this is what the king does to a man that he wants to honor. He could already see himself riding down the streets. Uh, he didn't realize he was the guy up front. So the king turned around and he says, hey man, do exactly as you said go and get Mordecai, put that robe on him because he needs to be honored Uh, and sit him on that horse with all of that fancy stuff that you talked about and do exactly as you have said. Well, of course, he can't turn him down because otherwise his head rolls. You know, this is not democracy now. This is not negotiations. Do as you're told or you're out of here. So Haman moves quickly, uh, leads the whole procession down there and shouts, this is what the king wants to do for a man that he wants to honor. And here is his arch enemy up there that he's already built some gallows to have him executed. Not only has he already issued a decree or manipulated a decree for all the Jews in the kingdom to be killed, but he gets so annoyed with this uh, Mordecai that doesn't want to bow down to him. He says, I'm not waiting for the next eight months for all the Jews to be killed. So they said to him, why don't you build some gallows and make it really high, like 
75 feet. I mean, that is what? Uh, 20 meters high gallows and hang him on there for the whole world to see. And, uh, and uh, now the guy that he wants to hang, he's leading uh, the, <laughs> down the street and he's like depressed. He goes home and he, he's depressed. Uh, and uh, why? because it wasn't about him. You know, sometimes when things don't go people's way and it doesn't become about them, they go home depressed. You know, it's like just get a life, you know, just be happy. That's not about you. It's about the family and it's about bigger things. Uh, so anyway, that's exactly what took place. Um, and he's depressed. So they get to, ha- to Esther's place for the second dinner party. And by now, Esther, she had prayed, she has thought it all through, and she knew exactly how to approach the deal. So here is the king. He's Haman, the arch enemy of the Jewish people. And the king eats, Haman eats, they drink, and then the king says, all right, Esther, what would you like me to do for you? I'll give you up to half the kingdom. I'm in a good mood, and you're a lovely queen. I'll give you anything you want, uh, up to half the kingdom. And she says, uh, king, my request is this, I'm asking for my life, and I'm asking for the life of my people. Now she comes out with her Jewishness. You know, a wise woman didn't, didn't, didn't say things back there that could have impeded her rise to that top position, but now she comes out, now is the right time. Gosh, she's a master at timing, that woman. Uh, and she comes out and uh, she says, and because we have an enemy, he wants to kill me, he wants to kill my people, and the king says, who is he? She says, Haman, it's this guy right there. <laughs> This guy right there, he wants to kill me. Well, the king flies into a rage. And I guess he was smart enough. He was smart enough to, and when he goes a rage, he goes out into the garden. Friend, if, man or woman, if you get angry, just get yourself out of there and just think uh, and, and gather yourself before you speak and act. Because people have made the dumbest decision in a moment of rage. So he goes out there and just to get his thoughts, hey, man, it's my most trusted advisor. And this creep and So... So he get ready to go back inside. Well, Haman knows that his own neck is on the line. So he's now pleading for his own life. And he's kneeling down to the queen uh, who is sitting there. Mercy, mercy, mercy. And somewhere he, he lost his footing and he fell forward on the couch that the queen was sitting on. And the king comes in at that moment. He says, what? The king says, is he going to attack the queen in her own house? And right there they put a sack over his head and led him away. And of course they said to him, oh, he's... Uh, built some gallows for Mordecai to be hung on. The king says, hang him on there. So they hung him 75 feet high. um, And the Jewish nation was saved on that very day uh, because one woman rose to the occasion and decided that she wasn't going to be helped by stupid laws that restricted her from fulfilling the purpose of God. She wasn't going to sit within her own comfort box. She was going to step right outside of that and absolutely stepped up to the occasion. And friends, sometimes when it's time to speak up, we just got to speak up. If I die, I die, she says. I'll just have to speak up. And that's exactly what she did. But because she'd done her preparation work and because she had moved wise, friends, walking by faith is walking in wisdom. It's not, it's not uncommon. It's not uncommon when I sit down with somebody and have a chat about this, that, or the other. People say, well, I'm, 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 ju- I'm going to do that. I've got a plan. I'm going to do that. I say, oh, yeah, but that is, doesn't sound like a good decision because that is actually against what the Word says. But I'm going to do that anyway, and I'm just going to trust God. Listen, it is stupidity to go against the written Word of God and trust God that it will work out. It's stupidity. But you hear it again and again where people become a law unto themselves. And that's not a good scenario. 
So, um, Mordecai is hung. Esther talks to the king and says, King, we've got to do something. Uh, Haman is hung. Haman, thank you. Praise God for women, I tell you. Praise God for our trusted advisors that are helping us to get it right. Hallelujah. And uh, so Haman is hung. Mordecai gets promoted into the position that Haman held. He's now the top man. Um, And the queen says to the king, and she says, King, we need to do something about this law that you have... uh, Signed, you know, of all the Jews to be killed. He says, well, what's written is written under the law of the meter persons. It can't be revoked. He says, but you guys write up another law and just you guys fix it up. So um, the queen and Mordecai got together. They issued another kingly de- uh, decree. And now they have incredible favor. They can now establish laws. They got the king's signet ring. They can fix the whole thing. And they started another law, another edict, another uh, decree that the Jews were allowed to defend themselves and that the Jews were allowed to gather themselves and, and come against their assailants uh, on the day when they were all going to be attacked. And it so turned out that uh, the Jews lost none of their people in the capital city, they killed 400 people on the first day. There was, that killing was only supposed to go on one day. And the queen asked, look, King, can we have a second day? We haven't dealt with all the enemies. He says, have a second day. So they killed another 300 on the second day. Throughout the kingdom, they killed 75,000 people that were enemies of the Jews. And uh, the amazing thing is that the Jews to this day in Israel and around the world celebrate a particular feast called the Feast of Purim. That goes around that very commemoration of that very thing that took place over that one over those two days. Where God worked a miraculous delivery of a people that were signed off to sure destruction. Because one woman had risen up uh, and decided to walk by faith. I mean, it's just a remarkable, remarkable story. Mordecai rises to the top in just an incredible, incredible way. And uh, in Esther chapter 4, verse 14, and again it says there, And who knows but that you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this and for this very occasion. Friend, we don't live to ourselves. We're here for God. And we're here for the advancement of the kingdom of God. God's brought us into this kingdom, into the kingdom of God for such a time as this. God has brought us into this generation, which for all intents and purposes would appear to be the last generation before the return of Jesus Christ, to reach out and to fulfill the purpose of God. We're just going to worship God with one song. And... Uh, just going to wrap things up here. And one thing that I would like for us to do is um, I would like to pray for women uh, that have stood in the heat of the battle and that need just a little extra prayer support because the man hasn't quite risen to the headship, spiritual headship, uh, so to speak. Now, uh, all the ladies that are able to come up this morning, um, it's, it's your call whether whether, you know, your man's here or where it's not here, but we want to pray for you today. And if it's inappropriate for you to come forward to indicate that your man has not taken his spiritual headship yet, then it might be best if you stay where you are and we're going to pray for you from a distance and trust God that when we pray for the ladies who have got a man at home or some place off in some direction fluffing around while you're holding the fort spiritually, we're going to pray for you regardless. So 
let's worship God. Uh, uh, and uh, you ladies, if you feel that you want some prayer, and particularly you need some extra support, uh, because God is never fully intended for women to be the spiritual head in the home, but many women are forced into that. And, and women can do it. You know, we could speak of Deborah, uh, one of the judges in the Old Testament. She says, I'm, I'm a risen a mother in Israel, and my heart is for the leaders. And she told the leaders what to do. And then sometimes, you know, praise God for women. So if you need prayer in this area, feel free to get down the front. We're going to pray with you.